Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, July 14th, 2022. I am so glad to be with all of you this evening. This is the highlight of my week and I'm grateful to every one of you for taking the time to spend together that we can study together and get ready for Shabbat and this week's Torah portion together. So God came to Bilam in a prophetic dream. Remember, Balak, the king of Moab, which is a nation in what is now Jordan, the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Balak is afraid because the Jewish people are approaching on their way into Israel. He thinks that they are going to conquer his land, so he wants to repel them. And his strategy is to go to Bilam, who is a prophet, to tell Bilam, to hire Bilam, to curse the Jewish people so that they will not be successful in what he thinks is their plan to try to conquer his land. Besides the fact that the Jewish people are not interested in Balak's land, they want to pass through to get to Israel. Besides that, God appears to Bilam when these messengers from Balak have arrived because they say to him, we want you to curse the Jewish people. So Bilam says to them, well, you know, I'm a prophet. That just means that I say what God tells me to say. So stay overnight and perhaps God will speak to me tonight and give me some instructions of what I'm going to be able to do for you. That's what they do. And God does appear to Bilam. And he says to Bilam, Who are these people with you? Who are these people visiting you? Who came to see you? Now, the next part of the conversation is that Bilam is going to say that they are asking him on behalf of Balak to curse the Jewish people. And God is going to tell him, do not curse the Jewish people. I will not allow you to curse the Jewish people. Well, we know the end of the story, and that is that notwithstanding what God has warned him, Bilaam does go on this journey. He does try to curse the Jewish people, but it ends up coming out as a blessing. Okay, we'll get to that later. But at this first point, when God appears to Bilaam in a dream and says, Who are these people with you? Rashi, the classic medieval commentator, says that Bilaam inferred from God's question, God's asking me, who are these people? That must mean that God does not know who these people are. Well, if God does not know who these people are, then when God tells me not to curse the Jews, maybe he's not going to know that either. Maybe I will be able to go and curse the Jews even though God has told me not to and God won't find out about it. That's what Bilaam inferred from God's question. Now, of course, the truth is there are a number of times in the Torah where God or an angel appears to a person and asks them a question. We have this several times in Bereshus, the book of Genesis, where God comes and asks a question. What are you doing? 
Who are you? Where are you going? Where God obviously knows the answer, but that is the way, Rashi says earlier, that's the way of beginning the conversation. But Bilam inferred from these words a ridiculous conclusion. God won't know if I curse the Jewish people. Now, that is astounding because after all, Bilam is a prophet. That means that his ability is to listen to God, to receive a message directly from God. You would think, I mean, it, it's impossible to imagine otherwise. You would think a person with that spiritual sensitivity, a person with that insight into God himself, would never make some kind of mistake to think that you can fool God. What kind of a crazy statement is that? Any child knows today. You can't fool God. God knows what we're doing. God knows what we say. God knows where we go. God knows what we think. What kind of foolishness is this? It's childishness is this that Bilaam is inferring from this question. Well, I'll be able to curse the Jews and God won't even find out about it. Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky provides an answer that is so deep and it is so relevant to every one of us in our lives. The Torah here is teaching us that even the wisest person can make a mistake. The truth is, history is filled with wise people who have made terrible errors. We see all around us very intelligent, very wise people, and they make the most awful mistakes, the most terrible indiscretions. And most of the time, explains Dr. Tversky, it's because a person, notwithstanding how wise they are, has some kind of personal motivation in what the outcome is going to be. If a person has some kind of personal motivation, some kind of ulterior motive, then it doesn't matter how smart they are. Their wisdom will be distorted because of their ulterior motive. This is what Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, this is what he meant when he writes in Proverbs, Sefer Mishlei, do not rely on your wisdom. Do not rely on being wise to always make the right decision. Because being wise, being intelligent, being smart does not prevent you from making a mistake if you are not thinking objectively. Bilam had a hatred for the Jewish people. And he had a desire that the Jewish people should be destroyed. And that's why he made this foolish mistake to think to himself, maybe I'll even be able to do it and God won't even know. God said not to do it. Maybe he won't find out. Even a person as smart as Bilaam, as knowledgeable about God's essence as Bilaam was, made a silly mistake because of his ulterior motive in what the outcome would be. 
And the only safeguard is to have a confidant, to have a mentor, a colleague, a teacher that you can share an idea with. And this confidant doesn't have to be smarter than you are. It just needs to be someone who is objective, who can see it without emotion, who can see it without personal animosity or closeness. Every one of us needs such a confidant to be able to bounce an idea or a judgment off of in order to make sure that we are using our wisdom and it's not being distorted. Professor Schneer Lyman tells a remarkable story about one of the greatest Talmudic sages of the early 1800s, Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin. Rabbi Chaim was the leading disciple of the Vilna Gon, Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna. And in 1803, Rabbi Chaim founded the Volozhin Yeshiva, which was in Lithuania, in Poland, the gem of Talmudic study, and it was the model for most subsequent yeshivos throughout the world, including in our day. Reb Chaim lived in Volozhin. There was another town not too far away, which had a very important Jewish community, Nevardik. In Nevardik, there was a younger rabbi whose name was Rabbi David. A third town, the town of Mir, well known as the yeshiva of Mir, is named after this town. There was a younger rabbi named Rabbi Eisenstadt. Reb Chaim in Volozhin, Reb David in Nevardik, Reb Eisenstadt in Mir. One time it happened that Two men from the communities, one from Mir, one from Nevardic, had a dispute. So they each sent their rabbi to present their case to be adjudicated by Reb Chaim in Volozhin. So Reb David came from Nevardic, Rabbi Eisenstadt came from Mir, and each of them pleaded in the court, the Jewish court of Reb Chaim Volozhin, pleaded the case of their member. And Reb Chaim heard the two sides. He deliberated and he decided the case in favor of the rabbi from Mir, Rabbi Eisenstein. And this is despite the fact that Reb David from Nevardic adduced strong proofs to his member's side. And he was justifying his position based on many Talmudic sources. But Reb Chaim dismissed all of those proofs and he ruled in favor of the man from Mir, represented by Reb Eisenstadt. Reb David was disappointed. He was upset. And from that time, he bore a grudge in his heart against Reb Chaim, the great Reb Chaim. But he bore a grudge. In those days, it was the practice that the great rabbis of Eastern Europe would travel to a fair 
that was held in Zelva, not too far away. And there was a man in Novartic, a businessman, his name was Yosef Kabak. And he came to Reb David, his rabbi in Novartic, and he said, why don't you come with me to the fair in Zelva? All the great rabbis come. You never come. People ask me all the time, how come your rabbi Reb David doesn't come to the fair in Zelva? And finally, Reb David agreed to travel with his fellow Yosef Zav uh, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Yosef Kabak. And they traveled together to this fair in Zelva. All right. When they arrived, Reb David saw that all of the rabbis who were there went over to greet Reb Chaim. Reb Chaim was the greatest of all of the rabbis. So all of the younger rabbis went over to greet Reb Chaim from Volazhin. And even though Reb David held, bore this grudge against Reb Chaim in his heart, but he said it wouldn't look right, it's not nice, uh, he's a very respected person, and Reb David went over to greet Reb Chaim also. When Reb Chaim saw him, he greeted the younger Reb David with great love and great respect. And then Reb Chaim said to Reb David, would you be willing to adjudicate a case on my behalf. There's a case that's come before me, but I would like you, Reb David, to adjudicate this case. Now, that was a great compliment for Reb Chaim, the greatest scholar, to assign a case that had come to him to be adjudicated by Reb David. That was a great honor. Reb David was moved. It's such a compliment that, that Reb Chaim had faith in him that he would be able to adjudicate properly. He said, of course. The next day, two Jewish men came to Reb David. One claimed such and such was the case. The other claimed so and so was the case. Reb David adjudicated, deliberated, and finally he issued his ruling. After that, Reb David returned to Reb Chaim to thank him. I adjudicated the case. Thank you so much for referring it to me. Reb Chaim said to him, just out of curiosity, what were the specifics of the case? What was it about? So Reb David said to him, this person said such and such, and that person said so and so. He repeated all the arguments and the sides and the dispute. And then Reb Chaim said, and so Reb David, how did you rule? What was your decision? And Reb David told him the decision. And Reb Chaim said to him, you did well. You ruled properly. Your decision is the correct decision. Wow, Reb David really felt good to have the great Reb Chaim say about his ruling that he was correct. A few minutes went by and Reb David turned to, Reb Chaim turned to Reb David again and said, my dear friend Reb David, was this case that appeared before you yesterday not the exact same case that you and Rabbi Eisenstadt brought to me that time ago? What, weren't the issues the exact same issues? 
And Rudeva thought about it for a moment, more than a moment, and he said, yes, yes. I didn't think about it, but yes, it was exactly the same case. And Rav Chaim said to Rav David, the way that you ruled yesterday, wasn't that exactly the same way that I ruled in your case? And Rav David was stunned. And it took him a few minutes to be able to say, yes, yes. So Rav Chaim said to him, do you see what happened? That when you came to me and you argued the argument and I rejected your arguments and decided in favor of Rabbi Eisenstadt and you were upset with me, you were disappointed in my ruling. But when you were ruling on the exact same case that came before you, you ruled the way that I had ruled against your position in the earlier case. And do you know why that is, Rav David? Because in the earlier case, you had a personal motivation. It was someone from your town that you were representing, and you were upset that your opinion, that your side did not win, and that's why you didn't see it truly. But this time, when two strangers came to you, you had no personal animus. You had no stake in the outcome. You saw it for what it was. You decided the truth. And Rav David was just amazed. And he had such a high opinion of Rav Chaim. He had misunderstood before. And he left Rav Chaim in peace. A while later, after Rav Chaim passed away, one of those two litigants that had come to bring the case before Rab David, Rab David happened to see one of the two litigants. And Rab David recognized him. Oh, you are one of the two people that came before me for that case that Rab Chaim from Volusian referred to me. Tell me, how did it work out? Did you both follow my instructions, my decision? Did it work out okay? And the man started to laugh. He says, the other person who came, I don't even know who it is. Rab Chaim simply called me and that other person because both of us at one time happened to learn in his yeshiva. Rab Chaim told us that the two of us should pose as litigants in a case. Rab Chaim told us what we should argue, what our reasoning should be, what our position should be. And we came because Rab Chaim told us to come. We have no idea why he said such a thing. And Rab David was stunned. And he said, Now I realize how great Rab Chaim is. There is no one like him. And on remembering that he had passed away, he cried bitter tears over the passing of such an awesome and holy person. Imagine the genius of figuring out how to point out Rab David's error in a way that showed respect to him 
and did not embarrass him. Everyone needs a confidant like that. Everyone needs someone who is able to point out when we are going on an incorrect path, but especially someone who will do so with love and with respect. <clears throat> okay, so Bilam wants to curse the Jewish people on behalf of Balak. But what comes out of his mouth is the famous, beautiful blessing. Matovu ahalecha Yaakov, the familiar words. We say it in the first line of the Cedar of the Prayer Book every day, every morning. Matovu ahalecha Yaakov. How good are your tents, Jacob, meaning the Jewish people. How good are your tents, your dwelling places, your homes. Our homes are the place where we raise our family. Our homes are the place where we create Jewish identity. Listen, please, to the words of Sivan Rahav Meir. The home is the real place where a person is tested. Not outside, in the public domain, not on a stage, and not on Facebook. But in one's own tent, in one's own home, inside, within relations with one's parents, one's spouse, one's children. It is there that our real character is revealed. It is there that we cannot lie about who we are or put on a mask. It is there that a continual workshop for self-improvement of our character takes place. Sanctity is to be found not only in the synagogue, but also on the sofa of our living room, in the kitchen, while brushing our children's teeth and in the constant prayer of each of us while we do these things. So that also about our own private home, we will be able to say, Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov, how good are your tents, Israel. The secret of the triumph of Judaism over the millennia is the Jewish home. But Rabbi Shamshul Hirsch points out that no matter how beautiful your home is, no matter how strong and secure your home is, what matters is matovu, how good it is, how moral it is how successful it is in transmitting Jewish values. Well, what makes a Jewish home good? In a phrase, shalom bias, harmony within the home. The Talmud teaches the way to ensure harmony between husband and wife is to live by this simple, practical advice. Love your spouse as much as you love yourself, but show respect to your spouse more than you show to yourself. So here is a practical description of how this works. And this is written by the great Hasidic master, the Chosem Lublin, the seer of Lublin. He wrote, as I was walking in a forest, I happened to come across a man 
who is stacking logs of trees he had cut. Each log had protrusions, small branches and bumps and twigs which grew out of it. As he placed each piece on top of the other, he did not cut off the protrusions in order to make the tree straight and smooth so it would lie flat against the piece next to it. He did not do that. Rather, in the log next to it, he would carve an indentation to make room for the protrusion of the adjacent log. And so did he connect the pieces one to another. To love another means to bring yourself close to another, to bring yourself in contact with another, but not by means of cutting off the protrusions of the other. Rather, carve out within yourself to bend yourself around the protrusions, the needs, the idiosyncrasies of the other. That's the way to achieve true shalom bias. And the first step to achieving shalom bias, true, authentic harmony within the home, is choosing who to marry. I fear that all too many young people and not so young people need guidance on which criteria they should use for this decision in choosing a mate. We are suffering today in the Jewish world an epidemic of rising divorce rates, particularly very soon after a wedding, weeks or a couple of months after a wedding, a dramatic and frightening rise of such divorces. There are a number of causes, many causes for this phenomenon. But one of them is, what am I looking for in a mate? What are my expectations? What are the questions I ask? What are the answers I need to hear in order to decide to go ahead with this? Because the truth is there are two goals in every marriage. Rabbi David Walpe points out one goal in marriage is that I should choose someone who will make me happy. There's another goal in marriage. I should choose someone who will make me better. All too often, people focus on what or who will make me happy now. Now, that's important. But if that is the only criteria, who will make me happy now? That marriage may be in for trouble. Because we must also focus on what and who will make me good. Who will encourage me? Who will respect me? Who will forgive me? Who will lead me to becoming better? That is a much more solid basis for creating deep 
and long-lasting Shalom Bayis. And we need to encourage everyone who is choosing a mate to do so wisely. <clears throat> this next piece is partially based on an essay by Rabbi Zev Leff. So, the famous line of the prophecy of Bilam in this week's Torah portion, I quoted to you, Matovu Ahalecha Yaakov, how good are your tents, Jacob? But Bilam has quite a few other prophecies spread throughout this week's Torah portion. One of them is a, a verse you may recognize because it is included as part of our Rosh Hashanah liturgy. Bilam says, Lo hibit oven biyakov. God does not see iniquity in Jacob. And God does not see sinfulness in Israel. Because God, his God, meaning the Jewish people's God, is with them. And the king's coronet is blowing to announce his coming. That's the connection to Rosh Hashanah, blowing the shofar. Usuruas melechbo. Our rabbis understand what that verse means, what Bilam is conveying, is that in God's eyes, every single Jewish person, our essence is good and pure. And this is in accord with another verse. Your people are completely righteous. Now, it's quite astounding that that verse, is a verse from the prophet Yeshayo, Yeshayo Anavi, the prophet Isaiah. He certainly had quite a few very critical things to say about the Jewish people of his time. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to read one of the most damning, critical passages in all of Jewish literature condemning the Jewish people, which led to the destruction of the temple on the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av. We're going to read that very painful to read passage. And yet, Yeshayo Hanavi, Isaiah, is given this prophecy by God, Ame Kulam Sadikim, they're all righteous. What does it mean? How do we understand that contradiction? The, the answer is as follows Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we fall. Yes, our actions are less than ideal. They have to be corrected. We have to be held accountable for actions. Yes, 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 and yes. But our actions are not our essence. Our actions are not our soul. We remain holy and pure. We use this phrase, this Yiddish phrase, the pintily yid, the spark of God that is within us. We are pure. Yes, our actions get messed up. Yes, we get led astray. Yes, we make mistakes. Serious mistakes. But we remain pure. And that is the message that Bilaam is conveying on behalf of God about the Jewish people. Allow me to share with you a fascinating application of this. So, we have a ceremony, a bris, ritual circumcision for a baby boy at eight days, if the baby's healthy, 
It's a beautiful ceremony. It's a great celebration. And there is an interesting feature at every bris. There is a kisei shel Eliyahu, a chair, a throne, a chair of Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. Similar to at every Pesach Seder, there is a kos shel Eliyahu, a cup of Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi. There is a cup of wine for Eliyahu Hanavi. Okay, that's a little bit different. It is a chair at every bris, and just before the bris takes place, the baby is placed on this chair, and the, a prayer is said over this baby that Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, should guide and protect this child, that he should be well and healthy and do well in life. Because our sages tell us that Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, attends every single bris, every single ritual circumcision that takes place among the Jewish people, Eliyahu Hanavi is there. That's why there's a chair for him. And it's a great honor that Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, is coming to every single bris. In fact, there's an interesting custom that's based on this principle. And that is, there's a custom which... Uh, should be followed. It's not so well known, but I'm telling you, there is a custom that we do not invite people to a bris. It's not correct etiquette to invite someone to a bris. Because if I invite you, I say you're invited to come to the bris. If you don't come, but Elio Anavi is there, how could you not come? It's disrespectful. Forget about not coming because I invited you. But Elio Anavi, Elijah the prophet is there and you're not coming? And for that reason, we don't invite people. We don't say you're invited. We say there's a bris. If I come up to you and I say, there's a bris on Tuesday at seven o'clock, that means you should interpret that to mean that I'm inviting you. But I don't use the words I'm inviting you because if you don't come, it would be considered disrespectful to Elio Anavi. Okay, that's just a little etiquette about how to prepare for a bris. Why does Eliyahu Hanavi, the prophet Elijah, come to every single bris? The answer is very surprising and not what you might think. There's a narrative in the book of Kings, say from Malachim, that there came a time when Eliyahu Hanavi, the prophet Elijah, was very frustrated and disappointed with the Jewish people with their continuous sinning and their idolatry and their pagan practices, and he got fed up with them. And Eliyahu Navi ran away to the desert, to Harsinai, to Mount Sinai. And when he arrived at Mount Sinai, God confronted him and said, Malacha po Eliyahu, what are you doing here, Eliyahu? God said to him, Malacha po Eliyahu, what are you doing here? Now, our rabbis point out that what Elio should have answered is, listen, master of the universe, they're your children. They make mistakes, but still they're trying to do their best. Um, let's see how we can figure out how to get them back on the right path. But that's not what Elio Hanavi said. Elio Hanavi said to God, what am I doing here? I'm a zealot for God. I cannot take Jews who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I can't take it. 
And God says to Eliyahu, You are disgusted with the Jewish people? You have given up on the Jewish people? God says to Eliyahu, By your life, Eliyahu, no Jew will perform a bris without you being present to witness it. I will require that you, Eliyahu, will be present in your physical lifetime. And even after your physical lifetime, you will be present at every single bris. And at the same moment, God said to Eliyahu, your role as a prophet is finished. Transfer your role to your disciple, Elisha. A bris, a ritual circumcision for a Jewish boy, demonstrates that the essence of every Jew is pure and holy from birth. And therefore, this baby is fit to enter a covenant with God, a relationship with God. Yes, there may be mistakes that will be made. Yes, there will be errors and sins, but that will not be the essence. And those sins and mistakes will not hamper or dampen or injure or lessen the relationship with God because the essence is pure. And a bris signifies that. And so God's critique of Eliyahu is contained in those words, Why are you here, Eliyahu? You think that the Jews' essence is so degenerate that there's no hope for them? That you would abandon them? Go to them. Rebuke them. Persuade them. Work with them. There's always hope for the Jewish people because their essence is pure. And because you don't see that, Eliyahu, I'm going to require you to be a witness at every single bris where this statement is made that a baby is ready to enter the covenant because we are pure. Our essence is holy, always, unmutably so. Eliyahu is at every single bris because he is forced to be there. To witness this eternal truth about it, the Jewish people. This eternal truth which a bris demonstrates. Lohibit oven biyako. There is no sin in the essence of the Jewish people. There are mistakes. Corrections are needed. But there is no flaw in the essence of a Jew. Allow me to share with you one last piece. <clears throat> this Sunday, we begin our annual subtle fulfillment of another of Bilaam's prophecies. Another line from this week's Torah portion, Hain am levadad yishkon. They, meaning we, the Jewish people, we are a nation who dwells alone. We dwell alone. A fundamental aspect of Jewish identity is the balance between being part of a larger society and remaining apart, distinct from that larger society. 
and it is sometimes necessary to be out of step with the rest of the world. The world is going on vacation. It's summertime. It's time for golf. It's time for leisure. It's time for vacation. It's time to celebrate. And we, starting on Sunday, we have the three weeks. A three-week period of time, starting on the 17th of Tammuz, Technically speaking, this Shabbos is the 17th day of the Jewish month of Tabas, but because it's Shabbos, it's pushed off a day. Three weeks of gradually intensifying mourning and sadness over the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the first one by the hand, at the hands of the Babylonians and the second one at the hands of the Romans. On Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, three weeks from Sunday. And on that day, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, of course, there too, the ninth of Av is actually on Shabbos, but it's pushed off because of Shabbos till Sunday. During these three weeks, we don't have any weddings. We don't have celebrations. On Tisha B'Av itself, we sit on the ground. We cry. We mourn the destruction of the temple. But there's, very, but there's something very strange about this process, this annual process that we have that puts us out of sync with what's going on in our wider society. Something that appears at first glance unhealthy in this practice. When someone we, lo we love, God forbid, dies, Nebuch, God forbid, we cry. After some time has passed, for each person it's different, Maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years, maybe it's longer. But gradually, we stop crying at least all the time. Now, of course, we're still grieving. Of course, we still miss the person de de deeply. Of course, we can still be sad. But no matter how much we love that person, no matter how close we were to that person, for most of us, the bitterness of the pain, the sharpness of the pain that causes us to cry out, mellows with time. It never goes away. It always will come and go at specific times. But in general, the sharpness gradually lessens. Now, if you are in pain over a loss now, it may hurt you to hear this. It may seem disloyal to their memory, and I understand that. But it is a fact of human nature. The Rambam, Maimonides, goes further and says it is wrong to mourn excessively. There is certainly a wide range of what is normal and what is excessive mourning. And rather than call it wrong, I would rather call it a symptom of perhaps an underlying emotional issue that perhaps requires some kind of assistance to address. But it is simply a fact that for most people, 
time heals. And yet, beginning this Sunday, we will afflict ourselves. We will mourn. We will shed tears for a building that was destroyed 2,000 years ago. A building that none of us has ever seen. None of us have felt its glory. None of us can truly, really say that we miss its presence. Few of us are even able to express its significance. And yet, year after year, century after century, the tears never stop. How is that? Why doesn't time heal that pain? <coughs> There's a poignant narrative <clears throat> in the book of Bereshis, in Genesis, the Parsha Vayeshev. Yosef and his brothers have a very poor relationship and his brothers actually first intend to kill Yosef, but then they sell him as a slave to Egypt. The result, of course, is the same. They assume that they will never see him again. And so they have to come back to their father to explain his absence, his permanent absence. So they make up a story. And the story they tell their father is that a wild animal consumed, attacked Yosef and killed his favorite son, Yosef. Vayishalchu es apasim. And they brought the coat of many colors, the beautiful garment that Yaakov had given to his son Yosef. And it was covered in blood. It was actually the blood of an animal. But the implication that Yaakov was to assume is that this was the blood of his son, that he had been killed by this wild animal. Vayikra Yaakov Simlosov and Yaakov tore his garments in grief. And he dressed himself in sackcloth. And he mourned for his son for many, many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters tried to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. Vayomer, and he said to his children, Ki ered el bini avel sha'ola, I will mourn, I will cry for my son the rest of my life. Vayefk oso aviv. And his father, Yaakov, cried for his son. How is it that Yaakov was never comforted? How is it that time did not gradually heal a little bit that wound? Rashi says something fascinating. Rashi says that this is not a natural or an instinctive process. Rashi says, Ein anamakabal tanchumim alachai, 
God creates a reality. This comes from God. That when a person, Nebuch, God forbid, passes away, someone we love passes away, God creates a decree that eventually the sharpness of the pain should leave us. It doesn't happen by itself. It happens because God ordains that it be this way because we can't live the rest of our lives in complete grief. We cannot survive like that. So God creates this process where time heals in the aftermath of a loss, but that's only if it's a loss. If the person is still alive, even if the relative thinks that they have been killed, thinks that they're dead, but if in effect, in, in fact, the person is alive, well, God's decree didn't happen because the person's still alive. And that's how Rashi explains that Yaakov could not be comforted because this decree that comes from God, that time should heal, did not apply because, in fact, Yosef was alive. I had an aunt, my mother's older sister. This aunt passed away in midlife, my aunt Elaine. She and I were very close. Our youngest daughter, Leah, is named after her. She passed away shortly after Aunt Elaine passed away. She, uh, my daughter was born shortly after Aunt Elaine passed away. For several years during the course of her illness, my grandfather, Elaine's father, wherever he went, wherever he was on Shabbos, in whichever synagogue it was, at home, traveling, any time he was called to the Torah for an aliyah, he would make a mishaberach for her. He would have the synagogue say a prayer for her recovery. He would give her he would give the, the, the Gabai, the person there, her Hebrew name in order for a prayer to be said. And he would give a donation to the synagogue for that prayer to be said in the hopes that the prayer and the tzedakah would affect a cure. After she died, my grandfather told me this. He said, when Elaine first became ill, my grandfather was sure that she would recover. And then it happened. There was one Shabbos. He was in a synagogue. He was called to the Torah for an aliyah. He asked that a Mishaberach prayer should be made for her recovery. And for a moment, an instant, just a moment, he couldn't remember her name. And he told me, he knew then, at that moment, that she would not survive this illness. And within a year, she had died. Her loss was and remains a terrible tragedy in our family, a hole in our family. But here's the point that I want to share with you. The Beis Amigdash, 
the Holy Temple in Jerusalem is not destroyed. It is rather temporarily out of order. And that's why we continue to mourn 2,000 years later. Like Yaakov, the decree of time healing is not in effect because it's not really gone, because it will be rebuilt. That is our certainty over the ultimate redemption, the coming of Mashiach, and the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash in Jerusalem. And its absence, because it is temporary, continues to cause us such deep pain, which would have ended long ago if it really were gone and we're not coming back. Another story concerning the Chose Melublin, the seer of Lublin. <clears throat> when the Chose Melublin died, I heard this story originally many years ago from Rabbi Norman Lamb. When the Chose of Lublin died, one of his sons came from some distance to claim his share in the inheritance. But all that was left to him was his father's coat and the wall clock that belonged to his father that chimed every hour. On his way home, the sun stopped at an inn. It began to rain very hard, and because of the rain, the roads were impassable, and he had to stay at this inn several days longer than he had planned to, and he did not have enough money to pay for all of those days at the inn. He was only planning to stay one day. And so, because he had no money to pay the innkeeper, he left his father's clock with the innkeeper. Many years later, a famous rabbi traveled and stopped at the same inn and heard the chimes of the clock. And he was extremely excited and agitated when he heard those chimes, and he turned to the innkeeper and he said, where did you get that clock? And the innkeeper told him about the Rebbe's son and what had happened, why he had to leave it there. And the innkeeper said to the rabbi, how do you recognize this clock? And the rabbi said, every other clock, when it strikes the hour, it has its own peculiar and characteristic message. The chime calls out one hour closer to death. But this clock, the clock of the Chosem Lublin, has a message that is different from any other clock in the world. Its chimes sing out one hour closer to redemption. Every year, when we mourn the destruction of the temple, we are not a year further away from that catastrophe. We are rather a year closer to its return.
and may our tears this year make it so. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.